Hello, and welcome to the Paperclip podcast. I'm Mehir Sharma of the Observer Research Foundation. And in this podcast, we are going to take a look together at the stories that matter to India and the world. Why Paperclip? Because we are going to take a step back from the headlines in your morning paper and explain what really lies behind them. And we're going to use cutting-edge research and commentary from across the world, and especially from my ORF colleagues, to do so. We're going to start off by talking about the fresh tensions between India and China, following the tragic death of Indian soldiers along the line of actual control in Ladakh. Now, the news has been full of multiple competing and sometimes contradictory narratives. Lots of people claiming that they know why Beijing pushed us now, or who is really retreating from the LAC, or who crossed it initially, or how India's response is faring. In Paperclip, however, we look at the bigger picture. And here, two things are incontestable. First, many people, both in the corridors of power in New Delhi and in the country more broadly, have finally woken up to the fact that we have a Beijing problem. And secondly, that it doesn't really matter why Beijing's leaders are pushing now. What matters is that they have quite clearly decided to keep on pushing. As ORS Samir Saran put it, let us stop theorizing and be bold enough to accept that Xi Jinping's China is just being itself. In his words, the current leadership in Beijing has willed itself into believing that it does not need to work within the matrix of international laws, rules and norms, and has an insatiable need to redraw boundaries. This problem is therefore not going away, and we need to plan to deal with it. So what's our plan? And here we need to think as realistically as we can, evaluating our capabilities and assets in the most clear-eyed possible manner. Let's break it down. Here's a logical way to think about the Indian response. In order to manage Xi Jinping's China, India needs to match it, or at least counter it, along three different dimensions. First, hard power. Second, soft power. And third, economic power. Again, hard power, soft power, and economic power. And these are exactly what the first three episodes of Paperclip are going to be about. Later on, we will discuss India's soft power, its diplomatic and cultural response, and its geoeconomic strategy. Today, however, we're going to look at the most basic building block of international competition, the state of our military. And what do the experts tell us about this issue? Well, obscured by all the short-term noise surrounding this clash, the fact is that India's defense strategy is not and has not been for some time that of a country that feels any urgency about the Chinese threat. The picture researchers have painstakingly built up contradicts various warlike headlines and political claims. In fact, the hard numbers tell a very different story. Just look at the 2020 Union budget, which was presented just recently, just a couple of months ago in February. Defence spending was increased minimally in this budget by only 6%. In effective terms, you shouldn't even consider that an increase, since it's well below the nominal growth rate of 7.5%. And perhaps that's one reason why the finance minister, in a departure from the usual practice, didn't even mention defence spending in her speech. And note, 
this was even before the pandemic forced a further 20% reduction in defense spending in the first quarter of this year. Nor is this new. For years now, India's defense spending has hit fresh lows when measured as a proportion of national output. In fact, defense expenditure without including pensions has dropped for some time below the ominous 1.6% of GDP mark. Now, why is this an ominous mark? What is so special about 1.6% of GDP? It's ominous because that was the previous low in India's defense spending. And it was hit in the year 1962. Do I really need to remind listeners what happened in 1962? And why all of India's leaders since then have tried amid poverty, famine and crises to avoid being so unprepared again? Meanwhile, as Harshpant, who heads ORF's Strategic Studies program, points out, the gap with Xi Jinping's China has grown. In 2010, China spent on its military just two and a half times what India did. In 2019, it spends 3.7 times India. And, as Pant points out, that includes the amount that India now spends on military pensions and salaries, which was a full two-thirds of defense spending in 2017. Take that away, and the gap is even starker. Right, so what about the capabilities that this money has bought us? Research has highlighted that the Indian Army, which is now the largest in the world in terms of manpower, simply has too many people. Our defense spending is being eaten up by those pensions and salaries. Harshpan says a leaner force will be a more capable force for India's current needs. A leaner force will be a more capable force. And Major General B.S. Dhanua was even more direct in his commentary for ORF. Here's what he said. As for the Indian Army, it needs to reduce its manpower across the board. The size and number of infantry battalions, regiments of artillery, and the mechanized forces. Now consider the Air Force. Many headlines have correctly highlighted at this time, at this crucial time, how various Indian defense partners have stepped up and helped us. France and Russia are good examples. The French sent a small contingent of Rafales to us early, and they even diverted top-of-the-line missiles meant for their own air force to India's. And we have just also approved the purchase of 21 Russian MiG-29 UPGs and 12 Chukhoi 30s. But let's be very clear. These are stopgap, short-term, even emergency measures. A lack of planning and a dependence on short-termism is what got us into a tough situation in the first place. ORF's Angad Singh notes that these two purchases seem to, in fact, contradict each other. And indeed, that there are multiple different and simultaneous plans and operation to try and upgrade India's air force, in particular its frontline warplanes. And all of these multiple difference and simultaneous plans get in each other's way and they compete for a shrinking budget. Angad concludes, what is left unaddressed by all these development and procurement vagaries is the inescapable fact that the IAF is the smallest it has been in half a century with fewer than 30 operational fighter squadrons. Four squadrons of legacy fighters are set to be phased out by 2024 with only two more to be added over the same period. And that is a net force reduction, taking the IAF to around 25 squadrons against a requirement of 42. So much for air power. Finally, some have argued, I have myself, that if India plans to balance China in hard power, then we need to look at the maritime domain in particular. 
In other words, if China pushes in the Himalayas, then India needs to show that it is present in other places that Beijing cares about. In particular, it can and must have a presence in the South China Sea, where, as ORF Rajeshwari Pillai Rajagopalan points out, the Chinese Navy has been unmistakably aggressive with countries like Indonesia and Vietnam even during the pandemic. But this needs to begin with a change in thinking in New Delhi. Abhijit Singh leads ORF Maritime Policy Initiative. And he points out that according to India's official maritime strategy, Southeast Asia is, within quotes, a secondary theater of interest. So far, India has avoided taking any real stand on disputes there in the South China Sea. And so the Navy has limited its activity as a security provider only to the Indian Ocean. But, Singh says, as Beijing applies greater pressure on the LAC in the north, India might have little option but to respond in a space China considers a maritime backyard. Yet the Navy, which represents our best hope for any such balancing, has seen its share of the already small defence budget cut since 2013 by 5 percentage points. It's down from 18% of the defence budget to 13%. As a consequence, it pulled back this January on its long-standing target under the Maritime Capability Perspective Plan to have 200 warships by 2027. It now hopes for 175, though it currently counts itself as having 130. Where does that leave us? It means that, put these things, things together, in terms of hard power, we are seriously underprepared and underpowered. And it has been getting worse in recent years. I wrote a column highlighting this problem a couple of years ago. And in the context of these depleting defense budgets, I wrote that, given the numbers, you would think India has abandoned all attempts to balance China and was instead concentrating on its economic story. But then we would also have to stop any aggressive rhetoric about China because nobody has ever claimed that speak loudly and carry a tiny stick is excellent strategy. Yet, India has made it clear that it does intend to challenge China in its neighborhood, on the seas, and on the world stage. But our politicians' egos are writing checks that our military cannot cash. And then, in fact, I admitted that this was a bad metaphor, because the politicians aren't writing many checks for the military at all. And this was in 2018. In 2020, the problem is even worse. What we've discovered today is that actually stepping up and dealing with the challenge posed by Xi Jinping's China is going to require effort, resources, and time, at least in the realm of hard power. In the next episodes, we'll see if India has any more effective options in the realms of soft power or geoeconomics. This has been Paperclip, and I'm Mihir Sharma. Thank you for listening.